On October 1st, 2015, a gunman went to Oregon University and, according to reports, singled out Christians and shot them. On June 17th of this same year, a young man went to the South Carolina church, participated for a while in a Bible study group, and suddenly opened fire on the group that was assembled there. George Soros... He made it to the number 27 of a Forbes list of wealthy people in January of 2014. was reported to have a net worth of 23 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars. He's an atheist. Larry Flint produces pornographic videos and magazines. He reportedly has a net worth of around 400 million dollars. He too is an atheist. I'm not singling any of these people out as some sort of special sinners, but I'm using them as an example to illustrate a point. And the point is, from a Christian perspective, we live in what you might call a wrong world. People that do evil, that participate in wickedness, uh, many times they get ahead. And they have, uh, I mean, $23 billion is a lot of money. Uh, That's more money you can spend in a lifetime. And, And sometimes they have a lot of money. Sometimes they target people of faith. Sometimes they take advantage of people, mistreat the poor. But believers, we're not far, we are far from perfect, not even close to perfect, and we freely admit that. We try to keep our collective nose clean. We try to treat others the way we want to be treated. We try not to lie, cheat, or steal. Sometimes, so it just seems like we can't get ahead. And maybe you've, maybe you've noticed that disparity, that sometimes it seems like the wicked are the ones who prosper in this world, and the righteous, the ones who try to live like God wants them to live, can't get ahead. We live in a wrong world. So how should we as Christians respond when we see such things? How should we respond when we see people in, in the culture as, as a whole or at large, when we see our friends, our co-workers, maybe our family members live righteous lives and they prosper, and we try to do right, and we can't catch a break. What should our response be? Maybe we see violence happening in this world, and, and we're seeing an increasing number of instances where Christians in particular are targeted. How should we respond? What should we do? How should we live right in a wrong world? Well, that's what David's going to tell us in the 37th Psalm, so if you have your Bibles, be headed, heading to Psalm 37. The text is going to be up on the screen. Uh, Psalm 37, it's a very long psalm. We're we're not going to read the whole thing. Uh, But we are just going to read the first few verses. In Psalm 37, just to give you kind of some some background on it, it's what's called an acrostic poem or an acrostic psalm. If you remember from your school days, you remember that an acrostic poem is one where they take, uh, you take letters that come in order like, uh, like the word faith or grace or whatever it is, and you... Uh, each line of the poem is going to start with that letter. You can also do that with the alphabet, and that's what David has done with the Hebrew alphabet. He, each, each one of these lines, uh, or the first line of each of these little groups, starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, like, if we were writing it, the first line would start with an A, and then the next group would be B, and so on and so forth. But one of, these things that I, one of the things I really like about this psalm, as I've, I've said this many times, I'm a very simple person, I'm very straightforward, as you know, and I really like that this is very to the point. It gives us simple, direct commands or directions for how to live right in a wrong world. Now, a lot of this stuff is not really 
what you, what you might consider all that deep, but once you start working your way through it, it's, it's uh, pretty profound. Now, we're going to work our way through the first nine verses. The, psalms, the psalmist is going to give us six things in these, uh, in these few verses. We're going to cover three today and three next week. So if you found Psalm 37, please stand with me in honor of God's Word. And we're going to pick up reading in verse 1. David says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, in your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Thank you. you may be seated. Now, as I said, the, the psalmist, David, he gives us three, well, he gives us six things. We're going to look at the first three things that he gives us in these verses. The first is right in verse 1. He says, do not fret or envy. Do not fret or envy. Now, usually we have one of two responses when we see evil going on in this world. The first is to fret. Now, what does it mean to fret? Well, uh, it means to get all worked up. Have you ever seen something going on and it, boy, it just makes you mad? Remember the, the old cartoons? I remember... Uh, back when the cartoons were good, they'd have steam that come out of their ears. You remember that? Sometimes that's the way that we feel. And the, the word that's used here in the Hebrew has the idea of glowing hot with anger. You think about a piece of metal that's been put in a fire, and after a while it starts to glow. It's, it's hot. And, 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 and that's a picture. Sometimes we see things that are going on, and it just makes us mad. And the other response that he says in verse 1 is he says, Don't be envious. Don't be jealous. Now think about that for a moment. Does it surprise you that we have to have a warning in God's word for the righteous not to envy the wicked? Uh, why, why would a righteous person, person envy the wicked? Well, one reason that they would do that is because, uh, you know, everybody wants to live the good life, whether they're a Christian or not. And sometimes we see, as, as, as we've talked about in the past, we try to live right, and we see somebody that's living wickedly, and they're prospering. Sometimes it makes us think, well, what I'm doing isn't cutting it. It's not allowing me to get ahead. Maybe I need to do what that person's doing so that I can get ahead too. I want what they have. But David says, don't do that. Now, both of these responses are understandable. And when, when we see injustice, it should upset us. I mean, if, if you look in the New Testament, Jesus himself got upset when he saw injustice. You remember whenever he went into the temple and people were buying and selling and, and disrupting worship? What did he do? He got upset, and in fact, one gospel records that he actually left, went and made a whip, and went back in, and that's what he drove all the people out with. He drove them out with a whip. Another time, there was a, a man in the synagogue that had a withered hand. And Jesus was going to heal him, and he put a question to the religious leaders if it was right to do good on the Sabbath and all these things, and they wouldn't answer him. 
because they were so legalistic, they said no good and no, no healing, no medical procedure essentially should be done on the Sabbath, and it made Jesus mad. And when we see injustice, it should cause us to have a righteous anger. But what this has in mind here, when he says, don't fret, he's talking about this, this uh, unrighteous anger. It talks about uh, being wrathful or, or uh, almost like a rage. It's the, it's the kind of anger that leads to sin. It's the kind of anger that leads to revenge. So he says, don't be like that. Don't be jealous of those people who are doing wrong. And the problem is, look at verse 2. For, for, here's the reason, they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. What he's saying is this good life that the wicked are living in the here and now is only temporary. They're like grass and herbs which wither quickly. Now really, this should, this should really resonate with us here in the Midwest because there's a lot of hay put up around this part of the country. And if you've ever put up hay or if you've just kept your eyes open any time around here, around hay season, you know that the grass can be, man, it can be green as a leprechaun's hat, and those, those mowers will come through, and they'll cut that, cut that hay down, cut that grass down, and it's not too long before it's brown, it's dried up, especially when the heat comes on and, and the wind's blowing. It dries out, and all that life and, and vitality that it had, it, it just disappears. And what he's saying is that the, the wicked... They're green right now. They're living it up. But one of these days, death is going to come. and Death is going to come for all of us. No, nobody can escape it. But when it comes, the evildoer will wither like the grass. Because this life, all this good that they have, this is all that they've got. Somebody has well noted that this is as close to heaven as the unsaved person is going to get. But on the other hand, this is as close to hell as believers are going to get. And so sometimes we look and we say, oh man, this is terrible. But realize, that's as close to hell as you're getting. And I, that's, that's pretty wonderful. So when you see the evil person, when you see the evil going on, David says, don't get worked up about it, don't fret about it, don't get angry and rageful and wrathful, and don't be jealous of them because we have to remember this life is not the end. Yeah, we may not have much in this life, but in the next life, what's that old song we, we, we sing every once in a while? I've got a mansion where? Just over the hilltop. The wicked, they don't have that, they don't have that hope. So the first thing he says is don't fret or be envious. Look at uh, verse 3. We get the second thing. Put your faith into action. Put your faith into action. He says it this way. Trust in the Lord and do good. Ain't that easy to say here on Sunday sitting in church? Just all oh, just trust the Lord. Just trust in the Lord. It'll be okay. Just trust God. Have little faith, and it's easy to say, and it's simple to understand, but it's pretty tough whenever the rubber hits the road. It's tough to actually put our faith in God. That means that we put our confidence in Him. We put our confidence in His power. We put our confidence in His providence, that He is working all things out. He's in the midst of all these things. And many times we see all that's going on in the world, and we get to the point of despair. We can be like... Like Paul, we can be distressed without being in, des in despair. We can be concerned about things without getting to that point of hopelessness. Why? Because we know who's in control. You know, we have, we have this big old book. And you read the end of the book, what happens? 
we win. Or at least God wins and we're on His team, so that means we're winners too. So trust in the Lord. You got something that you're facing? Put your faith in Him. But the next thing He says is do good. Look, look at what it says. If you can read black words on the white page, you can see trust in the Lord and do good. He's saying that if, if you have a true living faith, it's going to lead you to action. It's going to lead you to action. Isn't that what James said in the New Testament? He said, faith without works is what? Dead. One of the old reformers said, we're saved by faith alone, but by a faith that's not alone. If we have a true living faith, it's going to cause us to act. It's going to cause us to do good. Now, have you ever heard this idea? That we as Christians are supposed to keep our faith in the church house. You ever heard that? Oh, well, you can just worship however you want, but you, do, you, just, keep it, you just keep it to yourselves. You just keep it there at church. That's where it belongs. You don't bring it out into the public marketplace. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 explodes that idea. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should be doing good works as we walk, as we go through life. Not just when we come to church. We should do good works then, but not restricted to that. See, what he's saying is God didn't save you to sit... He saved you to serve. A lot of people, as uh, I think it's Michael Youssef in, in one of his books, he said we've got a, maybe somebody else, said we've got a lot of people uh, sitting on the premises instead of standing on the promises. It's Michael Youssef who said uh, we need to get off our blessed assurance, that's what he said, and get to work. And he goes on to speak, if you looked at, look at verse 3, he says, Trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land, and cultivate faithfulness. Now, verse 3 might read a little bit differently in, in your Bible because verse 3 is kind of the way that the, way that the sentence is structured is kind of a, a tough one to translate into English. But here's the big picture. He says, dwell in the land. What's he talking about? He's talking about Canaan, the promised land. And the land of Canaan became a picture, a symbol of, of God's overwhelming, overflowing abundance and His provision. I think it was a VeggieTales movie I saw one time. They said, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. How's that sound? And the person said, sticky. Okay, it's not literally, milk and honey's not everywhere, but this, it's, it's just overflowing with all the goodness of God. And even today we use that terminology to speak of, of heaven, don't we? we? We sing a song, Canaan land is just in sight. Okay, it's a picture of God's provision. So here's the picture. Here, here are people of God surrounded many times by people in a culture who don't follow God. Many of them are actively engaged in evil. And when the righteous see it, rather than get all worked up about it, rather than be envious and wish that we had what they have, and not get mad at God because He's letting them have so much materially speaking and not letting us have it, we need to get our eyes off of people and circumstances and get them onto God. We need to have faith in Him and do good to others, even to our enemies. You say, but, but that doesn't answer the question, what about my needs? What about what I have going on? What does, what does David say? Verse 3, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Dwell in the land and God will provide. Let Him shepherd you. What does he say in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I'm going to want a lot. Is that what he says? He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus says much the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, 
have all these needs. You're worried about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat. That's what the heathen are concerned about. You just look at the birds of the sky, look at the, the, the grass of the field. And what does he say? Don't worry about all that stuff. God knows what you need before you need it. But you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. In other words, we need to have an eternal viewpoint where we're seeking the things of God and God will take care of all those necessities. Have, have an eternal viewpoint, not a temporal one, and live accordingly. God will take care of the rest. Okay, so that's the first two things. The last thing that we're going to look at today is verse 4. He says, delight yourself in God. Delight yourself in God. Now, what in the world does that mean? Delight yourself in the Lord. Well, I think it helps. It might help us if we think about what the unbeliever delights himself in. How, how does he respond? Well, he, he probably has certain objects, maybe certain circumstances, maybe certain people that he delights himself in. He delights in having a, a big fancy car. He delights in having, you know, a 17-room home. He delights in whatever it is, materialism, money, whatever. He delights in that. He enjoys it. He spends time with those things. And because he loves those things, he's willing to do what's necessary to have more of it. You think about human relationships. You meet somebody new, and you spend time with them. You might, you might go home and say, you know what, I, I like them. They're pretty nice people. That's a pretty nice old boy. I, I enjoyed that. I'm going to have to get together with them again. But there's a different level of enjoyment the more that you know somebody. So you meet somebody on the street, and you talk to them. They're a mere acquaintance. You can enjoy their presence, but you get with that best friend that you've had since grade school, and you start talking. You get together with your spouse or, or whoever it is that you know a whole lot better there's a greater capacity for enjoyment the better that you know somebody. So how does this all apply to God? Well, He should be the one that we enjoy. We should enjoy spending time with Him. We should think of Him as our Savior and our friend, that He'll protect us, that He'll provide for us. And as we think about spending time with Him and how we can enjoy somebody, delight in them more the more that we know them. Think about that as it relates to God. The more that you know God, the greater capacity you have to delight in Him. To enjoy being in His presence. We can delight in Him by the things that He's made. The Bible says that all good and perfect gifts come from Him. You look at nature, you see all the beauty that God has made. And when we experience those things, they should be an opportunity for us to thank and to worship the one who's made them for us. So, what does this say to us in the context? Well, look again, look at Psalm 37. The context of the passage is this world is turned on its head. So how should we respond? Well, first he's saying, even in the midst of the bad, God still gives us a lot that we can enjoy and delight ourselves in Him for. But also, number two, he's saying, that when we're, in, uh, when we're in the spot that we're supposed to be spiritually, because our focus, what is it on? Our focus is on the last half of verse 4, isn't it? 
But He'll give us the desires of our heart. See, listen, our, our, our hope cannot be tied to this world. Our hope has to be founded on God because He's the only one that doesn't change. He's the only one that we can count on day after day. And you say, well, how does, how does this relate to giving us the desires of our heart? I'd like to have a billion dollars so I don't have to go to work anymore. I'd like to have all my debts paid off. I'd like to have this. I'd like to have that. Does that mean that God's just going to give it to us? He's writing us a blank check. He signed his name. We just fill in the, uh, the pay, to, pay to lines. Is that what he's saying? Now, we have to realize, as one commentator said, he said, our, inner, our innermost desires are here meant, not our casual wishes. There are many things which nature might desire, which grace would never permit us to ask for. These deep, prayerful asking desires are those to which the promise is made. So how can he make a blanket statement? Because he does say, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. How does this all fit? Well, one way is if we want to be, if we delight ourselves in him, we want to spend more time with him. We want to know him better. And that's, that's a desire that God will always answer. He said, draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. We are as close to God as we want to be. But also, when we're in the right spot spiritually, our desires match his desires more and more. And when we want what God wants, he doesn't have any problem giving it to us. Because our will is going to line up more and more with his good and perfect will. Now, do you ever think to yourself, this world's a lot worse than it ever has been before? I think in some ways it probably is, but in a lot of ways it's much the same. Because there's always been a tension between the wicked prospering instead of the righteous. So when it happens today, don't be amazed at it. Don't lose heart because God's still on the throne. He's still in the business of taking care of his people. But you'll notice that some of the things that he says are conditional. He says, I'll give you the desires of your heart. What's the condition? Delight yourself in the Lord. He says that He'll take care of us. What's the condition? That we seek Him first in His kingdom. See, a lot of times we want the shepherd of our souls to lead us to green pastures when we're out in somebody else's field. We think the grass is going to be greener over here doing something that God says don't do. And then we get over there and we say, well, God's not, well, I don't understand. When we have to follow the shepherd. The grass isn't greener over there. Instead of all that, we need to trust God. We need to do good. I don't know how much plainer that could be. Trust God and do good. You have a situation in your life that you need to uh, trust God on. Now, faith is not one of those things where we put our faith in Him and say, I believe God and that's it. And we don't ever have to wrestle with it again. Many times we have to we, we put our faith in God. He's going to take care of it. I believe He's going to do it. He's in control. I believe that. And then we start to let worry creep back in, and we let doubt creep back in, and we start taking our eyes off Him, putting on the circumstances, and then we have to do it all again. Put your faith in Him. Trust Him. Maybe you need to work on doing good. Yeah, you, you have the faith. Let that faith lead you to action. And when you see the wicked in this world, 
don't fret, and certainly don't be envious. Now, talk about putting your faith into action. The first way you do that is by putting your faith in Christ. It's repenting of your sin. It's turning from your old life and trusting Him to save you. Now, if you've never done that, I want to extend that opportunity for you to do it today.